Hi, and welcome to Beyond Bold by The Bold Age. Our aim is to encourage and support people approaching retirement and in later years to live a longer, healthier, more active and bolder life. We also want to create a dynamic voice for social change, recognising that boldies can and want to add value to society. In our Beyond Bold podcasts, we will reflect on a host of topical stories, relevant news, and also interview some great people who are making a real difference to our Boldy community. In our Bold Interviews podcast, we will be reflecting on a host of topical stories with people who are at the centre of making a difference. What they've seen and experienced, what their reflections are, and what are some of the lessons that they've learned along the way. This week, I am so pleased to welcome two fantastic guests, Deb Bunt and Peter Berry, co-authors of the book Slow Puncture. Reading the blurb that accompanied the book, it says that it is an account of a year in the life of Peter, an ordinary man living in a sleepy Suffolk village, happily married and running a successful business. However, Peter's life changes when at the age of 50, he's given a terminal diagnosis of early onset dementia. Blurb goes on to say that when Peter meets recently retired Deb through the love of cycling, they embark on regular cycle rides, and as their friendship grows, Deb can look at her own life through the lens of Peter's dementia monster. However, having read the book, I really don't think this does justice to what is an extraordinary, inspirational piece of work. It deals with much more than a year in the life of Peter. It immerses the reader in an evocative, longer journey from the black depths of despair onto finding a purpose to live for, then an emotional journey full of exploration of living in the moment. For it is the moment that needs to be lived, as Peter has little recollection of what has gone before or what is to come. The book is not just about Peter. It is also about Deb's personal journey from working closely with troubled families in South London and, who in her words, was stale and cynical, to being captured by Peter's love of life and finding herself exploring and living in the moment of seeing and feeling hope and joy rather than despair. Through their collaboration and with the support of Teresa, Peter's wife, Deb and Peter have captured many parts of his story. And what I enjoyed most was how Peter's Suffolk burn heartfelt words that can only come from living in the moment and expressing what you feel in the here and now came shining through. What escaped the pages was not memories, but a sense of the raw emotion that comes only from the heart and his determination to confront his dementia monster and push him away as best he can. Peter has a wonderful, unique way with words and has the most amazing verve for life. As Hugh Bonneville said, his story is an inspiration. Something I took away from what I really thought was a truly heartfelt and inspirational, fun book, A Slow Puncture, that you both are a bit madcap and love <laughs> a challenge. Do you say that's a fair reflection of you both? I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's all about living life to the full and, um, and not putting anything off till tomorrow, but doing it today. And I have these wonderful ideas that are completely crazy. And uh, if, if, if nobody says yes when I ask them the question, I just say, well, I'll do it on my own. So they have to say yes. So, yeah. <laughs> and I think more than that, if I say to Peter, oh, shall we? And I haven't even finished the sentence, he would say, yep. <laughs> so maybe that's yeah. a 
as well not taking anything too seriously. So being able to laugh at yourself. I know you find that a, a, an important thing. And I, I'm constantly mocking myself. So I think maybe that comes across as madcap. I think be, being able to, to laugh at your own condition somehow helps that condition to be a, helps you to live with it better, I think. But learning to do that uh, can be a long process, I, I think. Yeah, and that comes across right the way through the book, I've got to say, between the two of you, actually. So how, how important is cycling to you both? Um, to me, personally, um, cycling is, is something that I suppose really has virtually saved my life. Um, I think one of the things that I have said in the past is that dementia, it, it, it creates so that I lose my path, whereas um, the bicycle becomes my compass, if that makes sense. And, um, yeah, I, I, I just find that it gets me away from my dementia monster. Cycling gives me an independence. It, uh, uh, I can get on the bike and I can go where I like. If I take a wrong turn, it doesn't matter. It's just that freedom again, and uh, that's so important. And I think exercise is just important full stop. Whether, whether somebody has a condition and, and they walk or jog or run or garden or do whatever they do, it's, it's so important to to be able to be ourselves and do what we want to do and leave our dementia monsters at, at home. It, it, it's just better to cope with things afterwards. And I, I think I see a difference in Peter. Obviously, A, I've only known him for two and a half years, and B, I only see him at his best. But I do notice a difference when we're cycling, that he's, he's just Peter. And that's when he seems to spark into life and... Be, you know, I'm going to put inverted commas here, but be just normal, a normal guy. Yeah, yeah. A, a mad cat, normal guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's your lifeblood, isn't it? It's yeah, it is, and I think, uh, I think I'm right in saying that at the moment I'm doing between 800 and 1,000 miles a month. That's pretty amazing. You know, I, mean, I, I love cycling, and I have to say, I don't do as much as that, so that's just fantastic. Well, I think and we're, we're very fortunate around here on the Suffolk coast that we've got some, some great cycling routes um, and we're only just a, a, a stone's throw away from the ocean and, uh, you know, we've just got some great little rural country lanes and uh, it's lots to look at and lots of places to go. I, I was also taken with the fact that Peter and Deb, you actually talk about it in the book. When you're on the bike, when you see things, there is a sort of... Uh, emotional attachment to those things that you are passing as you cycle? I, um, I worked in the timber industry for oh, 38 years, and most of my work was around this area. So places that we cycle, and virtually every woodland that we cycle past, I have worked in at some stage in my career. And um, that just brings back lots of, lots of visual memories. To give you a little example, <clears throat> if somebody told me how to get to a, asked me how to get to a certain village today from Debs here, I, I can't in my mind work out how to get there. But yet, if somebody gave me a map, I could look at that map and say, oh, yes, we go this way, that way, here, there, and I could work it out. So it's very similar as I can't think of things, but when, I, when we cycle places, visual things just strike up a memory. Um, they just strike a chord, and, uh, and I probably chat away probably the same thing as I chat at the last time we cycled past that particular place, but I'm sure Debs is very good, and uh, she doesn't very often go into the aha mode, so uh, she always says very interesting. But I think it, it connects with memories of your father. 
Oh, yes, my, my dear old father. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. So if you have not worked in a particular part of the land, your dad probably had. That's right. Yes, my father spent, because uh, I, um, I ran the business after he retired. Funny enough, I ran it after he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It's a strange setup. Um, the whole thing ran full circle again with myself. But, uh, yeah, I, he worked as a, a young lad and all around this area. So the, the memories are so good. And I think if, if I was in a different part of the country, I don't think it would, it would be the same. I wouldn't have those, those memories. And I just say at this point that the book itself is, is a wonderful book. Everybody says it's a great book, but I try to explain to people that it's a book that I personally will never read. And I don't really know what's in the book. I've got, I've got a rough idea, but, but I, I just don't know because I, I, I've lost the ability to I read words, but I can't remember what I've, I've read. So it's quite bizarre. Everybody's saying, great, I love the book. I think, yay, it's a lovely front cover. And it's about the only bit I know about it. <laughs> that was what was quite difficult as well because trying to consult with Peter all the way Knowing that once we've agreed something, actually you're going to forget. Yes. Yeah. And, and trying to handle it in a way that wasn't going to be offensive or insensitive <coughs> to either him or to either, but wanting to be honest, but you not knowing what I was saying. It, yes. it, it's a really yeah. strange experience. Yeah. I don't think many people have been down that road, really, of, of writing about a book who, about somebody who's actually living and a good friend of theirs and actually not really knowing what the book's about. So I think that's quite a surreal thing, really, yeah. I don't think people know that Peter hasn't read it. Even though he says it repeatedly, I think people just don't get it. No. You, no. you must have read it. You must have flicked through it. And every time you see even the dedication to your father in the front, you say, which there is, by the way, <laughs> you say, oh, something about my father. <laughs> it, you, you just don't know what's in it. And that's no. really important. It's, it's fascinating that. Theresa, your wife, Pete, would have read it. So, Debs, what's, what's her thoughts? I don't think she's read it all. I think, understandably, it's quite a painful read. She's, I don't think she's read it yet. Is that, is that your feeling? Not that I'm aware of she hasn't. No, I think that um, somebody who has a partner um, with, with this condition, I think, finds the, the reality of the condition um, and the stark truth of it very difficult to, um, to, to handle. You see... People like me, we don't suffer with Alzheimer's. The people around us suffer with the condition. Um, and my wife sees all the failings and sees the things that I forget, and she's the one who has to repeat herself and putting things in wrong cupboards and, and doing all the, the things that change over a year even. And um, me, I don't see any of that. I'm just quite happy going along in my own little world, cycling around trying to remember all the things that I've forgotten and then forgetting that I've remembered them. And uh, so I think it's, it's very difficult for my wife and uh, a lot harder than it is for me. I have a dementia monster that sits on the settee and grumbles at me and I get away from it. My wife has a dementia monster and that's called me. That's the thing. <laughs> and I think everybody who has a person that they love with this condition can relate to that. So I think, you know, what does Teresa think about it? <clears throat> I don't really know. And although I ran through it with her and told, went through each chapter and r- roughly what the contents was, I found that quite a difficult thing to do because it's about Peter. And I think she's not ready to read it yet. But I also think that she's very proud 
of all the things that I and we as and friends and family have achieved since diagnosis. And I think it's fair to say that over the last, how long have I been diagnosed? Four or five years? Five. Yeah. Over the last five years, I've probably achieved more in that five-year period than I, I really did 10 or 15 years previous. Um, just cramming so much in. So life is very, I think life is very busy. And sometimes, well, here's the thing, sometimes we forget I have dementia. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really important. Sometimes I do, I know I've said it to you, I see you, Justin Peter, who looks after me when we go out cycling, who, who fixes a flat tyre or who changes the height of my saddle. And I have a laugh with, and I don't see you as living with dementia. No. Until no. something hits me in the face. As it were, like, like a wasp or yeah, like a wasp. Or like you say something, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, I think we just had this conversation ten seconds ago," and then it comes back to me. So, yeah, I don't, I don't label Peter as Peter with dementia. I label Peter as my well, my best friend in Suffolk. Oh, oh. No. Apart, apart from my husband Martin, he's going to listen, obviously. <laughs> and also, I will add that Suffolk is a very big place. <laughs> I, I was also taken in the book where it talks about the real joy of you both living in the moment. I know for Peter, you know, that really is an extremely important part. But if dead first, it actually, what I was quite interested in is that that wasn't something that I thought reading the book that you had before you moved to Suffolk and before you met Peter. And it seems to be something that you've come to embrace. Is that fair? That's exactly right. So I, I still haven't embraced it fully. I think by necessity, Peter has to. But you know, before we retired, it was always looking ahead or thinking, what can we do now? Or something's going to happen. Or even if I was at a theatre or at an Arsenal match, which wasn't that enjoyable, obviously. But it was never about that moment about being there or having a good time with friends or family. But it was, what am I going to do next? Or what can I worry about next? But and I, I have not perfected the art by any means, but I'm much better at doing it now. But let's just hold on to this moment. This is, this is nice. This is good. It is, yeah. And, and I guess you've taught me that. It's perfect. Um, the thing is, you see, dementia takes my yesterdays and it takes my tomorrows, but it doesn't take my nows. So now is where I have to where I have to be. And um, I think it is difficult to um, to do something like that unless you're backed in a corner and forced to do it. Well, I, I have to do it, so I, I probably do it very well. But um, I think it is it is important that. You know, dementia is a rough deal. There's no two ways about it. But we can we can live pretty good and full lives with this condition if we learn to live beside it and, and walk beside it and not try and battle against it all the while. You know, my father used to say, you've got to um, focus on the things you can do and not worry about the things you can't. <laughs> and, uh, he was, he was, very, he was very, very true in his saying. And you talk about, Peter, sitting, you know, by the side of this dementia monster, but you visualise it and you've actually drawn it. Mm. How, yeah. how important was it for you to actually have a character, caricature of this monster? When I was um, diagnosed in the early stages, I went through, I think, as most people do with a diagnosis of um, dementia and many other conditions, to go through a bout of sort of depression. And um, I come to realize that um, taking the condition out of my head and making it a thing that I could poke and prod and, uh, and, and, and I could do something with it, I could leave it, that, that gave me the ability to cope with it better. 
rather than just having it as a condition in, in my head. I, I need to take it out and make it a physical thing. That's, that, that's what I need to do. I always remember when, when we were first diagnosed, because it's a diagnosis for a family, we, we thought that my memory loss was to do with a brain tumour and that sort of thing. And I do remember that when the doctor told me I had early onset Alzheimer's, I was quite relieved because I thought, wow, God, at least it isn't nothing too serious. <laughs> and that was my first thought because I had no idea. People of my age group who were fit and healthy and, and, and didn't sit in armchairs and fall asleep at five o'clock in the afternoon watching the news or something could get dementia. I thought that it was just old people. And, um, but as time went on, I, I needed to somehow make it something that I could, you know, I could deal with physically. And uh, that's work. That's work. And I think, uh, I think the idea of a dementia monster seems to have taken off with, with other people with dementia. And I think that's something that has now gone into schools and various other places because children can relate to a monster that's taken nanny or grandma's memories away. It's something, you know, something physical. It feels like, and, and I get a sense of it again, Deb, from the book, that there's a real intensity around challenges, wanting to cram everything in, as you, as you just said earlier, to really take it by, I'm not sure I can say this on a podcast, but just sort of grab it by the balls and actually give it a good shake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think at my lowest point um, during my depression, I, I came to promise myself that every year I would do a challenge of some sort to just to keep me going, to give me something to focus on. I, I, I ran a business, I organized people, I organized all sorts of things, and I did, as many people do, ran my own life. And then all of a sudden, dementia takes so many things away. You can't just sit in a chair and do nothing after being active. I wasn't allowed to drive. I wasn't allowed to, to do all the things that I had done. And I couldn't read. I couldn't really watch television much. So great. Let's do a challenge. Let's focus on something. And um, I suppose that's, that's another, another point for my compass. I just had to focus on things. And, and we haven't done a challenge this year because of, um, because of, the, of the COVID. But um, me being me, I've put it down to me training for the big challenge next year. Which we don't know what that is yet, by the way. It's a surprise. That's a surprise to me too, but I'll think it's something, don't worry. That's why I tried to fit in the book, it was a year and a life off, really, because that year, a year and a half ago, so many things happened. So You had to do so many activities and challenges, and it was a, a restaurant programme, and some American guys filming you. There were so many things that happened in that one year. Mm. Uh, I think it was, a, it was a busy old year. Yeah, I, I suppose it was. I don't honestly recall, actually. I know we did the restaurant. Um, I, I don't recall the other bits and bobs. Um, well, I did, I did one challenge one year where I cycled across the country from, from Wales back to, uh, back to Suffolk, so from one coast to another. And I remember that quite well. Um, I sort of had my, my finger on the pulse of that one. Me and another lady did it, didn't we? And um, that, was, that was pretty good. The following year's challenge that I did on the penny farthing, I'd, I hadn't really got my finger on the pulse of that one. Dementia had progressed a bit so that I didn't really know. I knew that I was going to ride a penny farthing around four or five counties, and basically I just followed everybody else and, and grinned a lot. And, uh, and so that gives you an idea of how sometimes things can move within a year. 
people like us with, with dementia, we're very good showmen. We have a great shop front, but it, but inside things change quite rapidly. But we, we don't always show. The thing I was taken with the four counties challenge with on the penny farthing was how your your colleagues on the on on the ride, including Deb, there, you were actually the most physically fit out of all of them because everybody else was injured. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah they Well, they're all lightweight, you know. You know, I just, oh, dear, it's awful. And what I have to put a hell I suffer. <laughs> well, I, I think there's a, quite a charming irony about it. Like you say, from the eyebrows down, you're extremely healthy. Yes. And um, all of us, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, our minds are relatively, relatively okay. Gosh. That was hard. <laughs> but we were crooks. And it, it was quite an amusing contrast. Yeah. I had this, this great belief that if I keep my body from the eyebrows down fit and healthy, that should help the bit from the eyebrows up. That's what, that's what I'm, I'm trying. The, the other thing that comes across to me from reading about the challenges and the things that you've actually done, you do together, is just how much your friendship is actually a mutually supportive one. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah without a doubt. And yeah. I think that's really important because some people who don't know us too well think I'm supporting you or looking after you or caring for you. It couldn't be further from the truth, could it? No, no. It's um, people, people like me with, with dementia in where we are at with our condition, we don't really need care. We need a certain level of support and understanding. But it, we also need to be able to help others. So if anything goes wrong with Deb's bike, then I'm the one who, who does it. Um, and it's, it, it's great to have that, that sense of, of purpose again, really, I suppose. I mean, the fact is, here's the thing, um, if it wasn't for Deb's, I wouldn't be doing all the cycling that I'm doing because my wife works um, and, and that sort of thing. And if it wasn't for me, Debs wouldn't be doing all the cycling that she's doing. And if my wife went to work all day, she would have concerns of where I was, what I was doing, because sometimes I'm not sure she's at work or she's walking or shopping or where she is. And um, so my wife is also safe in the knowledge that I'm, I'm with somebody doing something. It's it's just this 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 balance really, and it's somehow this works. I don't know. It's nothing that we planned, and I think very often with this condition we look at the big charities um, who are involved in Alzheimer's for support, and that's fine. They do a great job, but sometimes support can be closer to home than we realize, and that's important. And I always say that friends and family know you as a person. They know the person you were. They know the person you are. So as support and friendship, they're hitting the ground running, whereas the charities, they have to get to know you. They have to get somebody to know you. It all costs money and it's not an easy thing, and it doesn't always, the gears don't always mesh in. But with local support from friends and families, then it meshes in straight away. And um, in, in some cases, I think support is, is far better if it's, if it's closer to home. And you're very lucky to have been surrounded by a lot of supportive people. Yes, I am. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people who, have, who understand um, there are some that don't understand, and, and that's fine because raising awareness and education is what we're all about. So 
Um, and I, I get that some people don't understand, but I think I think the thing is that um, with a diagnosis like mine, I think the closest people to you tend to evolve with your condition, and um, they, they they tend to get to know you, and they tend to to. I mean, it's it's frustrating for people, but at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And I think that when we when we're diagnosed, we we drop a little pebble into into the the, the pond, and the ripples go out. And the people that are closest to you get those ripples first, and they're the ones that that, that they get to understand. You know, I mean. Uh, the support that I have, I wouldn't be able to to function as I do. I'll put it that way. Mm. Um, and even though I still do lots of things for myself, but to give you an idea, me and my wife do a lot of cooking together. She basically tells me step by step what to do. Things have to be in blocks for me, if that makes sense. So um, it's it's cut the onion. So I cut the onion, and then what do I do now? Then do this, do that, do so and so. Everything is staged. If she said to me, do this and this and this and this. They would be completely lost and will be able to do it. So it's, it's that level of understanding that that just gives you some sort of normal existence, really. Yeah. Well, I think to be honest with you, like all these things, people's perception of dementia is very different to the reality. It is old people in, in care, and I think that more people are being diagnosed in an earlier age group because the diagnosis process is, is getting better and there's an understanding about it. To give you an example, my, my father had Alzheimer's for all getting on for 20 years and he had lots of struggles in that time, but I used to meet him weekends and we would go up to the local market town up at the hill in Framingham and um, he would chat to people as, as I do and people would say to me, there's nothing wrong with Jim, he's all right. You say he's he's all right and they've got no idea of as with me he would walk away from them within five minutes and he wouldn't recognize them again or wouldn't realize that he'd seen but yet he could talk a good job and and so people people don't quite get it they they react on what they see and um if you've got a broken arm or a broken leg or you've got a great big broken shoulder or a big cut people can see that but if, if something's happening inside your head, you can't see it. And I think it's it's trying to change people's perception that, uh, yes, people with dementia in some cases can drive um, and they can do all of these things. But when you see one person with dementia, you've only seen one. Everybody is different. And the classic example of that was the restaurant that makes mistakes. 13, 14 of us, all with dementia, but different types of dementia, which create a different abilities and different problems. But together, we all supported each other, and, and, and I think we did very, very well. And I think programs like that do, do challenge the stereotypes or the preconceptions and, and make people think. Because I think you were saying, does more need to be done to make people aware of living with dementia and what, and what it means? And, and I think now as well with football players and rugby players being diagnosed early because of head injuries, that's another thing that will raise awareness. But you don't know. Until, until you've talked to somebody living with a condition, you don't know. People say to me, you don't look like you've got dementia. So how does one look when they have dementia? Do you have a big D on your head? Or are you somehow, is there something different about you? You know, and um, this is the problem. 
that you don't look like you've got dementia. But no, I mean, people don't. And that's just how it is. So it's changing people. And I think in this local area, in this town, and all around the local area, because a lot of people knew me because I ran a business for all those years, I think people are getting it now that around here, they realize that dementia is not about old people in care. It is about a different type of, of person. And I think that, you know, people, people are getting it. So I think we're, we're doing a good job. And there's many people in my age group with dementia who are not hiding away from it, but are not shouting it from the, roof, from the rooftops, but are trying to help people to understand. And do you find that for you, the journey is always so much more important than the destination? Yeah, yeah, um, uh, definitely. Um, it's, 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 I suppose it's like, it's like having an old vintage car. Somebody buys a wreck of a car and they spend years doing it up. And when they've actually done it up, they take it to a few shows and, oh, well, we're bored of it now. I want another car to do up. So they end up getting rid of that and buying another car to do up. So it is, it is the journey, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely that. For me, anyway, because I generally forget where we've been the day before. Uh, I don't really know where we're going um, after this. Um, so it's actually just 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 going, and that's that's why the challenges are so important. Um, we pick a place and we say, well, we're going to go to North Norfolk, or we're going to cycle to London, or we're going to do whatever. And um, it's great because other people have to sort it out, and I cycle. <laughs> I, think, I think the journey links in me living in the moment. Yes, the journey for, for us both is enjoyable, Yeah. whatever happens on that journey. And when we arrive, okay, we arrive, and if you're going to talk your metaphors, you know, your journey is... Much better than the destination, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's what you do along that route. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. Totally much more important to be doing and to be travelling than to arrive. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you travel to get lost, as long as you're travelling. As, as, as long as you're moving and doing something. The other thing that I, I was struck by with the book was the treatment of the condition in the sense of, from a systems point of view, that life insurance doesn't treat it as a terminal illness. That you know the cost of medicines. You know, if you had cancer, I think you use that as the analogy. Deb, you get a lot more of these things for free, but it's not seen as the same way. And that, as I say, from life insurance to medicine. Well, I mean, here's a very little example. I've got um, I take thyroxine because I've got an underactive thyroid. That's free, and all my other medications, whatever I might need, is free. Uh, that doesn't seem to be logical at all. No, does it? Because no. you need your medication. No. The trouble is, you see, I, I'm, I'm too fit. That's the problem. I don't have diabetes. I don't have a heart condition. I'm, I'm not overweight. So, therefore, I have to pay for my medication if, uh, to, to treat my Alzheimer's. If I had any of those other aforementioned conditions, then I would, I would get everything free of charge. It is difficult. And in actual fact, we had a, a big problem with our life insurance through, um, through a well-known bank. <laughs> Others are available. And we actually, I've got to get this right now, we went to Canary Wharf to do a presentation of some sort. And there was a man there who was quite high up within that banking world. And we nabbed him and uh, collared him and got him in a corner and, and had this, this thing out with him. And we said, look, you know, it's, it's, it's not right that people like me should have to pay into a system and then actually when it comes out because there's one little word that's not there 
or it's just not quite how it should be that we shouldn't get our payout. And we we explain to them that there's going to be an issue because people are having mortgages now, not for just 25 years like we did ours, for a lot longer period. People are going to get diagnosed with dementia during the period of that mortgage. What's going to happen in the not-too-distant future? People who have got mortgages in their 70s, mm. is the bank going to be favourable to them or are the bank going to say, like they did with us, on one hand, you've got a terminal condition, we can't help you. On the other hand, you haven't got a terminal condition, oh, we can't help you. And, um, I mean, there's been quite a few instances where and situations where people in my age group have lost their homes because of dementia. Now, if you got, we'll just say cancer as a, as a point of reference, if you got cancer, the insurance would pay out and you would keep your home. You get dementia, it doesn't. And that's not right in most cases. It's not right. You see, getting dementia is okay to a point because we're physically fit. But the other flip of the coin is the financial side of it. Um, people who are retired have a pension, and that's fine. They don't have to work. But people like me who get uh, dementia in a working age group, A, we can't access quite as much benefits as anybody else. It's hard work. You have to go through these processes and and, and people judge you as to whether you're fit and healthy, you can go to work. I mean, to give you an idea, uh, we, we tried to access a benefit and the doctor at the time told my wife that I could work and I could work in a call center. Now, what, what does that tell you? Um, we, we actually uh, fought against that and another opinion from another professional said, no, no, this man can't work in a call center. I mean, what are you talking about? But I was lucky because when I started work at 15 and a half, my father suggested I had a pension and I didn't want a pension at that age, but he made me have a pension. So I do have a private pension to draw on, but so many people can't live well. They get depressed. It's another draw on the NHS because they just haven't got the support. And um, that's the key thing. Finances and, and that sort of thing is the key thing that people don't think about in our age group, we're still at a working age. And that's, I think it's a very, very, it's, it's, it's a, something that I'm very passionate about that needs to change. The system of trying to get some sort of benefit is not easy. My, my wife and many other people are going through the issue of having a diagnosis, the no income, losing their house, and not being able to pay the bills and having to go through this procedure of trying to access benefits, which is horrendous and difficult, people run out of steam very, very quickly at the end of the day. And um, that, that creates all sorts of, all sorts of issues, uh, not just for me, but for the, for the people around me. I mean, to give you an idea, I, I do recall I was living on my savings before I could get my pension because the pension company did not want to pay out a year early even though I had, um, I think it was that year early, I had um, this condition and I got down to, I think I had £21 in my bank account to my name. And uh, I still had a little bit of mortgage to pay. I thought, what the hell am I going to do? And they, they just, the, the uh, pension company just wouldn't want to pay it. And I was very fortunate. I got a lady involved in it who, who dealt with this sort of thing and she said, I'll get your pension for you. And she, she got it for me. But it was wrong that they wouldn't pay out early when I 
but I couldn't work, you know, just before I was 55, I think. Um, so it was a great relief to have that, you know, rant over. <laughs> That's important for people to hear. I think, you know, those are the things that, that really incense everyone. I mean, I, I had a sense of real anger hearing that. Just in a very few short sort of words, what do you think really drives you both? You first. Um, oh, gosh. I, I can't really answer that. What drives me is <coughs> I enjoy being fit, I enjoy cycling, I enjoy Peter's company, so that drives me each day, what are we going to do? I also enjoy writing, so I want to keep writing. Uh, what drives me? Oh, I'm living in a moment. I don't have any, any drives. I don't know. <laughs> Peter, you answer. I think that what drives me is the... The realisation that one day in the not-too-distant future I won't be able to do what I'm doing now. So there's this, this passion, this impulse to do everything. And in doing everything, that might help me do things for longer. And I think that, that's a very good answer to a question. And, and we're coming at it from different perspectives because we have to think like that. I, I think it's, it's fantastic sentiments from both of you, actually. I mean, the thing is, just to give you a little insight, um, probably 10, 15 minutes after we've done this, um, if Deb's asked me what we've done, then I, I, will, I just won't, won't recall it. So, yeah. It's a bizarre world in the head of Peter Berry. <laughs> <laughs> well, i tell you one thing. On the final note, I really uh, am looking forward to hearing about the next challenge. And I'm going to suggest one to Deb's anyway. Oh, exciting. <laughs> it's all going to be like Christmas, unwrapping emails. Well, thank you very much, both of you. It's been wonderful talking to you. And uh, I look forward to catching up with both of you again. Enjoy your ride if you're going out for a ride. Absolutely. Thank you very much. It's, it's always a pleasure, to, um, it's always a pleasure to, to share our story and try and inspire other people to live very well with, with dementia. And, uh, you know, guys, I know it's... Uh, it's, it's a funny old condition, but, you know, don't let it get it down. You can live well with it and live every day. You know, don't, don't regret anything. Just do what you've got to do and do it well. But keep it legal. Hell <laughs> <laughs> <Elmo>. no! <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Talk to you soon. Bye now. The Beyond Bold podcast is production by thebaldage.com.